Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm Rob Sweet, and I'm one of two teachers that we have here, along with Lloyd Shadrach. And if you're new to fellowship, let me tell you a little bit about how it works. You most weeks either see myself or Lloyd here. We have two campuses. Our other campus is in South Franklin. So when I'm here, Lloyd is down at Franklin and vice versa. We're in the same series in the two campuses, but we're one week apart. So Lloyd this morning is teaching the same message he taught here last week, and then we'll switch back and forth that way. If you're new to fellowship, you'll not only need to know and want to know that we share teaching responsibilities, we share worship responsibilities, we're a team-led church, but you'll also want to know that the way we teach is we, we use what is called an expository method. That just means that we teach the Bible verse by verse, in some cases like this morning, phrase by phrase, and typically we'll pick a book. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll just walk all the way through it. So you found us here in the middle of uh, the study of Colossians. One of, honestly, the best, and well, I shouldn't say the best. We're talking about the Bible. It's all the best, right? But one of my personal favorite books in the New Testament, this short little letter, you know, you could read it in about 15 or 20 minutes, and yet if you really dive in, really dig in, really look and take note of what's there, uh, it's incredible. There's all kinds of treasure literally in, in every single uh, verse in this letter. Uh, we gave these out at the start of the year. These are the ESV scripture journals. Um, what I like about these, there's not a lot of commentary, there's not a lot of notes, it's just empty space. There's the text on the left page, then on the right page there's this blank space to take notes. If you have one of those, grab it, pull it out. If you lost yours or you weren't here when we started and you want to grab one, you can find them online. I know there are various places. I, I looked on Amazon.com and they're $5.99 each, so not a terribly large investment. Search for the ESV Scripture Journal. You don't have to have this to follow along in the book, but one reason why we love you to have it is because we're going to encourage you to mark up the text as we go. And of course, you can do that in your own Bible. I encourage you to mark up your own Bible as well. It'll make it more useful and valuable to you. We're going to be underlining things, drawing circles around things. Sometimes, you know, Lloyd and I will draw something on the board and kind of illustrate that. So we really want to get as much from this study as we possibly can. Now, with that said, let me just say, one of the things I love most about teaching the Bible is because I believe that theology is always practical. And some of you are thinking, no, it's not. You know, it's the opposite of practical. If theology is just academic and it's just head, it doesn't have a lot to do with real life. I, I beg to differ. I believe that what you think about God, what you think about yourself, what you think about the primary problems of the world and what the solutions are to those problems, where you think you will personally find fullness of life, those are all theological questions that have profound practical implications because what you believe shapes everything you do. I want to give you a little illustration of this. Not too long ago, earlier in, back in the fall, um, our youngest daughter, who's uh, nine years old or just turned nine, she's in third grade, uh, she came home and she just had that look on her face like something awful happened. Cares what happened. And she told us about an incident that had happened in her classroom that honestly wasn't a huge deal, but it was a huge deal to her. And it wasn't her fault, but she was involved and she felt all this shame. She was embarrassed, you know, kind of like all, all her friends kind of hurt. Oh, they didn't care, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were talking about her behind her back. And she came out to recess later that day and she says, I just put my hood from my sweatshirt up over my head. All recess. Now, for the heart of a father, you know, it's just heartbreaking to just think about my daughter wanting to hide herself 
you know. And so we, we had a talk, and, and I wanted to help her think differently about what happened and, and try to hopefully you know, bring a different perspective, bring some truth into it. Now, I'm not a super dad. I'm not a super parent. But this was one of those conversations where, by God's grace, he just gave me some questions to ask her and some thoughts to kind of offer her. And I literally saw the light bulb go off in her head. And at the end of the conversation, she literally she looked up at me with a whole different countenance. And she said this. She goes, you mean I've been worried for nothing? I said, yes. And she just beamed. She's like, oh, well, then can we talk about Shopkins? <laughs> I don't know if you know, know, know what Shopkins are. It's like the most trivial little things, you know. So her whole countenance, her whole mind shift had changed, and that changed everything about how she was going to be able to engage her school day the next day. What you believe shapes everything you do. Now, Paul's message in our text is guard your mind, guard what you think, guard your thoughts, so to speak, because there's so much at stake there. It reminds me of what he wrote in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul wrote this. He said, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Life change starts with what you believe. It starts in your mind, and then it goes all throughout your whole being and lands in your choices. All right, now let's get into this text. I'm going to reread it. You've already heard Paul read it, not the Paul, but <laughs> Paul Campanus, who read our text. I'm going to reread it, and then here's how we're going to do it. We're just going to dissect it. We're going to work through it, phrase by phrase. In some cases, Word by word, there's only three verses here. And then I'm going to try to get through that with enough time so that we can apply it because there's some very powerful application for us today in our cultural context, I believe. So here it is, again, verse 8 through 10 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. First thing we want to do is to mark up the text is we're going to put a box around every direct reference to Jesus. We've been doing that all throughout this book. And, and we've just found literally almost every verse has one. There's three direct references to Jesus and these three verses this morning. Colossians is maybe the most Christocentric of all the letters in the New Testament. So put a box around the word Christ in verse 8. We'll put this on the screen as well. Put a box around um, him in verse 9, for in him. And then you're going to do an awkward page turn if you have the scripture journal. And then one more in verse 10. Put a box around him again. You have been filled in him. So Christ, in him, in him. Three direct references to Jesus. Now, let's explain what's going on here. Back up to verse 8. Paul's saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. That's a very strong phrase, a very strong idea. It's very visceral. It's very visual. It's very dramatic. Like Paul's saying, we're talking about a war. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about enemies and, you know, good guys and bad guys. And it kind of takes our mind in this whole way. It reminds me of what he said in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his own kingdom. So Paul is tapping back into this, you know, rescue story that we talked about. Every time I, I read that verse, you know, rescued us from the domain of darkness, I think about the SEAL team, you know, SEAL team six coming in and doing some dramatic rescue mission. What Paul is saying now in chapter two, verse eight, is he's like, although you've got new citizenship, you're a member of this new kingdom, you're a citizen of a new kingdom, in a sense, until Christ returns, we're still in enemy territory. And so 
we have to be careful. See to it, he says, that you don't become captured, that you're not taken captive. Now, what in the world might capture you? Like, what do you have to be on the lookout for? What's so dangerous? You're talking about the boogeyman, you know? Is, what's, is there an enemy army? Like, what, what, what might capture us? Look at what he says. See to it, no one takes you captive. By philosophy? Really? Philosophy and empty deceit. Let's talk about this. The only time in Scripture that the word philosophy is used is right here. That surprised me when I researched that. Uh, philosophy, of course, you may know, is a Greek word. I mean, it's one of those words we just trans- transfer right over into English. Philo, love. Sophia, wisdom. Love of wisdom. That's what philosophy is. So, so Paul is saying there, there's something here you have to watch out for. Now, don't think about our academic discipline of philosophy that some of us studied in college. It's not exactly that. In the ancient context in which Paul was writing, the word philosophy had a much broader meaning. It wasn't talking about a fairly narrow academic discipline. Uh, Here's how you might think about what philosophy meant in in that, that way. It could refer to any way of thinking that attempted to make sense of the world and answer the big questions. Uh, So just like today, in Paul's day, everyone had their own ideas about how life worked, what spirituality meant, and where fullness of life was found. Isn't that true in our day? I mean, everybody has their own idea of what spirituality means, where fullness of life is found, you know, answering the big questions of life. Everyone, you might say, this way, searching for fullness. Everybody's searching for meaning. Maybe the best way to understand the word philosophy in Paul's context, how he was using the word, is to think of it as whatever worldview or life strategy you believe will lead you to fullness of life. Whatever worldview or life strategy you believe will lead you to fullness of life. So some of you are like, man, you know what? I've got my daily routine. Without my daily routine, I can't experience fullness of life. Well, you know, that's true and it's not true. I'm sure it's a very helpful routine, but is that daily routine what's giving you fullness of life? Some are like, man, I've got a relationship in my life or I've got, I've got a way that I deal with hurt and pain or, or anxiety and, and that's what gives me fullness of life. Some of you are like, oh, it's my dream, it's my career. It's, we can go all kinds of different places. Whatever worldview or life strategy you believe will lead you to fullness of life. Paul's saying, speak, be careful that you're counting on the right thing. So he goes on to use two words that characterize the kind of philosophy or the kind of thinking that can take you captive. What does he say? He says philosophy and empty deceit. Those are the two words I want to talk about, empty deceit. Um, Paul's saying be very careful about ways of thinking that are empty and deceitful. So the two words go together in this context. Let's talk about both and then we'll put them together. Empty is exactly what it sounds like, the opposite of fullness. So Paul is saying, ironically, people come up with all these philosophies and explanations for life and all these life strategies to try to reach fullness, to try to reach zen, to try to, you know, get what they want out of life, but almost all of them lack any substance at all. They're empty, and they lead us only to emptiness rather than fullness. Therefore, because they're empty, they're actually deceptive. They actually deceive you. They promise fullness, they deliver emptiness. That's a trick, that's a lie. It's deception. Empty deceit. Now right after that, he goes on to explain 
where these empty and deceitful philosophies come from that the Colossians have to watch out for and that we also have to watch out for. Uh, here's where they come from. Keep going in the verse. That are, they are according to two things. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So two places where they come from, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world. I'll explain that unusual phrase in a minute. One place they definitely do not come from, Christ. See the contrast there. Now, let's talk about human tradition. Then we'll talk about elemental spirits of the world. By human tradition, Paul just means, you know, essentially what it sounds like. Stuff that's just made up. Made up by human imagination, passed on from person to person. No divine origin, no revelation from God, just purely human speculation. And if an idea is repeated enough by enough people, a lot of people think it's true. Isn't that just true? It's just true. Get an idea out there, someone comes up with it. If it's repeated enough by enough people, must be true. Paul's saying, be careful. You know, some of these empty and deceitful philosophies are just according to human tradition. But there's another source as well that, that, that's actually underneath all of this. According to the elemental spirits of the world. This just got weird. Yeah. Yeah, so Paul's saying the second place these empty and deceitful philosophies come from is elemental spirits. Now, what are you to make of that? What are you to do with that? Well, scholars have had a really hard time with the Greek phrase. And you can see that if you read multiple English translations, you see various ways. This is one of the most difficult phrases in Greek to translate in the whole letter to Colossians because it's a very rare Greek word. Essentially, what the Greek word means is it's like fundamental particles of something, like you know the ABCs of the world, so to speak. Well, where do they get spirits from? ESV and a lot of other English translations say elemental spirits. I wanna make a case that, that this phrase Paul is using is describing the spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces in the world. And, like, where are you getting that from? I, I want to give you the context, and I don't have time to really unpack the, the complicated grammar and the parts of what's going on here and do a deep word study on this interesting word. But I want you to pay attention to a few things. In chapter 1 and 2, Paul refers to dark or evil spiritual forces five different times. So this very much fits the context. In chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about a domain of darkness. That's the rescue verse that I read to you a few minutes ago. In chapter one, verse 16, he talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and he's talking about those in the spiritual realm, spiritual context there. Now, then we have our verse this morning, uh, elemental spirits. Go down to verse 15 of chapter two, rulers and authorities, again talking about that in the spiritual realm, the spiritual context, and then again in verse 20, the exact same phrase that we have this morning, elemental spirits. All of these phrases are pointing to the reality of forces of darkness that you cannot see. And so the origin, Paul is saying, of the empty and deceitful philosophies that can take you captive are on the one hand human, but if you pull back the curtain, Paul's saying there's more going on. Now, we don't have a whole lot of room, unfortunately, in our theology for stuff about the spiritual realm because it just sounds weird. And, and there are certain traditions and certain contexts historically throughout Christianity that have majored in that stuff. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about 
two dangers when talking about or, or thinking about the spiritual realm. One is you pay too much attention to it, and the other is you ignore it. And we don't want to go down either of these paths. It's interesting when you read the words of Jesus, when you read the words of Paul, they talk about the spiritual realm a lot. So we've got one God, no question about that, but that one God made other spiritual beings. Messengers of God, we call those angels. Demons, which are angels that are in rebellion against God. And there is a spiritual reality beyond what we can see. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about. So listen to what he's saying. This is really important to get this and wrestle with it a bit. Paul's saying, see to it that you're not taken captive by these empty ways of human thinking that would pull you away from the truth because behind the human thinking is something less than human. Something that has no intention of giving you life. And so it's right at this moment when Paul just talked about these curious elemental spirits that he contrasts those things with Jesus Christ. So he says, you know, look, look back down at the verse. He says, you know, these empty and deceitful philosophies are according to human tradition, according to elemental of the spirit, and not according to Christ. You see the contrast? This is where the passage hits a hinge point, a pivot point. Everything that came before is warning, verse 8 up to this very moment is warning. Everything that comes after, the last phrase of verse 8, all of verse 9, all of verse 10, is all going to be encouragement. It's going to be positive, talking about where fullness actually is found, where truth actually is found. It says, not according to Christ. Keep going to the next verse. Well, let's put verse 9 and 10 on the screen if we can. Not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwell, dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So here's Paul's point. I'm just gonna summarize, explain these, these two chapter, uh, two ver three verses as best I can. He's saying that there's all these ways of thinking, all these worldviews that are ultimately empty, hollow, deceiving, they ultimately have their origin in dark places. In contrast to all of that, young Christians in Colossae, your faith is rooted in something entirely different. It's not from human tradition. It's not from elemental spirits, but from Christ, who is the fullness of deity, God himself. Not only that, but by faith in Christ, you've been filled in him. And so when you, you look at all the three verses together that way, you start to see a major theme in these three verses is the contrast between emptiness and fullness. So let's illustrate this. Pull out your pen or pencil again if you have one, and, and I want you to circle a few words so you can see this, this empty, full contrast. We'll do them on the screen as well. Circle the word empty in verse 8. Then look down in verse 9. Circle the word fullness fullness of deity, and then flip over to verse 10 and circle the word filled. Okay. Empty, verse 8, fullness, verse 9, filled, verse 10. 
He's drawing this contrast, you know. <laughs> These things are going to give you emptiness and this one thing's going to bring you fullness. What Paul is doing here is so smart. Of course, he's writing inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. But he's still a brilliant man. He's a brilliant thinker. What Paul is doing here is so smart. He's tapping into the desire of every human being. What does every human being want? When it all comes down to it, what do we all want? Fullness. Fullness of life. You can call that what you like. You call it contentment, call it joy, call it satisfaction, call it flourishing, thriving. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. You know, I want to leave a legacy. It's, it's all these things. What we're, what we're actually saying is what I really want is life, you know, and, and not just a little bit of life. I want fullness of life, as much life as I can have. Paul's saying, do you know where you'll find that? He said, don't, don't be taken captive by these empty, deceiving things. He said, fullness is in Christ. It's not in any other philosophy. It's not in any other fine-sounding argument or plausible argument. Not in any other worldview. Not in any other way of thinking because compared to Jesus, all of that is hollow and empty. But in him, the fullness of deity dwells. It reminds me of what Jesus said one, one of maybe my favorite statement of Jesus in the Gospels is in John chapter 10 verse 10 he says the thief comes to steal to kill destroy but I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance do you see Paul is just making the same contrast that Jesus made where do you think Paul got his theology? But Jesus is saying, listen, there, there, is, there is darkness out there that would only want to rob you, that would dangle out a promise of fullness of life, and then right when you grab on it, it would say, actually, there's a catch. What you're left with is emptiness. You've been deceived. And Jesus says, no, no, I've not come for that. I've not come to under-promise or I've not come to overpromise and underdeliver. Jesus says, I've come so you may have life and have it abundantly. Here's the big idea, and then I want to bring us to some application. The big idea of our text this morning. Don't exchange the fullness of life that is yours in Christ for empty ways of thinking. Don't exchange the fullness of life that is yours in Christ for empty ways of thinking. Now, our problem with these empty ways of thinking is that they're all around us. And they're deceptive. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about our unique cultural context. I want to kind of bridge the context between the first century Colossae to 21st century Middle Tennessee. Because there's, there's a lot of dissimilarities between those. But there's some interesting similarities. And I want to say that we live in an interesting time, don't we? I mean, there are a lot 
of empty and deceptive philosophies out there. A lot of life strategies, a lot of beliefs. And that's actually similar to Paul's day. I mean, you know, we said it earlier. Everybody in our day has their own idea of what spirituality means, where fullness of life is going to be found. Go to Barnes & Noble or browseamazon.com, search for self-help books, search for self-improvement, self, you know, search any of those kinds of terms. You're going to get inundated with, you know, seven steps to a better life and, you know, become healthy and thrive and, you know, all these different kinds of things. Everybody's got their own idea on this. So here's the application that I want to take us to this morning, a direct application of these verses. I want to ask the question, what are some of the empty and deceitful philosophies of our day that promise fullness of life, but actually are empty? And then we'll talk about what's the antidote to those empty, deceitful philosophies. So what are some of the empty, deceitful philosophies of our day? Oh, man. Like how much time do we have? Not enough, right? We could, we could name 12 or 20 or 80 or 100. I'm going to choose two. And I'm not saying these are the most important two or the biggest two. These are the two that I think are directly connected to this text and, and the two that I think may help us the most this morning. Two empty and deceitful philosophies that are just in the cultural water that we swim in. The first is relativism. Relativism. It's a, a word a lot of us have heard before. Let me, let me give you a definition from the Oxford Dic Dictionary just to get us all on the same page. Relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. So it's a little bit of a lengthy definition, but essentially the bottom line is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality are not absolute. Now this is tricky because on the one hand, you look around and you're like, well, yeah, that's true. Like, what you believe to be true, is it not very influenced by the culture you were raised in, the parents that raised you, like just, you know, your cultural context? Isn't everything kind of informed by cultural context? And in a, in a one sense, like, it influences what you believe, the culture you were raised in, et cetera, et cetera. So is, is this actually right? Is this actually true? Now, in our day and age, kind of the ruling philosophy that fits under this relativist banner, relative banner of relativism, is this idea that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. And you can't step on my toes by saying that, that, that you're right and I'm wrong, or that your truth claim has more weight or more value or more substance than my truth claim. Uh, I like the way D. Michael Lindsay put it. He's the president of, of a small Christian college up in, in Boston, Gordon College. He said, the problem is not that Americans don't believe in anything, but that they believe in everything. And if you think about it, that actually means we don't believe in anything. I mean, if, if you believe in everything, you don't really believe in anything, ultimately. What, what I want you to see, men and women, that just just pushes right in this hot button area of our culture is I want you to see that over and over and over in Colossians, Paul says, Jesus is not one of many. The, the Bible does not teach that Jesus is one of many. What, what, what does it say? We've been in this for several months now. It says he is above all. He is the firstborn over all creation. All things were created through him and for him. One of the reasons we want you to memorize the Colossians Creed that Lindsay led us through at the beginning of our service and we'll keep doing it every week is because this theology has the potential to shape you and transform you 
do you actually believe what the scripture teaches about Jesus, that he is above all other things? I know that sounds, you know, that sounds arrogant. We'll talk about that in a minute. That sounds so exclusive, et cetera. We'll talk a little bit about that. Our text even this morning, the very end of verse 10, Paul says he is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is not one of many. And that belief is a big part of the Christian worldview. So what I've noticed a lot is all kinds of people are saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I find my fulfillment in Christ, but other people will find their fulfillment in other things and it's wherever you find your fulfillment. Listen, part of the Christian confession is that Jesus is above all things. And I want you to hear something and let this really sink in because I think this is very important for a lot of us in the room. Believing that does not mean you think you're superior to other people. Believing that Jesus is just unique and alone in all of human history, fully God, fully man, with everything to offer human beings in comparison to everything else, that does not mean that you think you're superior to other people. And let me, let me take it another level. Actually, following Jesus will always lead you to humility and service, not to pride and power. I think we need to sit in that for a minute. Following Jesus will always lead us to humility and service, not pride and power. So think about what Jesus demonstrated, right? We know a lot about his life, a lot about what he taught. We've got these four accounts in the Gospels. Here's what Jesus demonstrated. A rock-solid conviction of truth combined with a remarkable attitude of humility and service to others. That's what we're called to imitate. Rock-solid conviction of truth Remarkable attitude of humility and service to others. Guys, that's what will influence the world. Because the world has no category for that. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about relativism in a minute, but I just, I, I want you to, to see it. I want you to think and engage your brains this morning. You know, this is one of the empty and deceitful philosophies of our day. And, and what Paul would say in direct contrast to that is Jesus is not one of many. He is unique in all creation. He is above all things. Let's get to one other one, one other empty, deceitful philosophy that I think is just all in the cultural water we swim in. Uh, I'm going to call it selfism. That's maybe a unique way of saying it, but you'll recognize it. As soon as I define it for you, you'll recognize it. I got the word, by the way, from David E. Garland, who, one of the, the Bible scholars I read about in Colossians commentary. Here's what David Garland writes. Selfism makes the self God and makes life's ultimate purpose reaching the self's fullest potential and satisfying its utmost desires. Selfism makes the self God and the ultimate life purpose is reaching self-fulfillment, satisfying desires. Does that ever sound relevant in our day? <laughs> Guys, this, this is the cultural soil that we're planted in. Watch any advertisement or TV show, read any magazine or blog, you will find selfism 
as the underlying matrix philosophy that everything else operates on. This particular philosophy, I think, is so ingrained in our cultural fabric that it's not even questioned anymore. Self-fulfillment is an assumed right. And the fact that we live in a primarily individualist culture really just exacerbates this. It's this idea that, well, self-fulfillment is my right. Now, this one, you know, kind of like pluralism, uh, I'm sorry, relativism, kind of like relativism is a little bit tricky because it's like kind of some half-truth. This one is tricky too because from certain angles, it doesn't seem wrong, actually. Shouldn't I want to reach my full, full, full potential? Wouldn't God actually want me to reach my full potential? Yeah. Is it wrong to satisfy my desires? The key is the first part of the definition of selfism that I gave you earlier. Selfism makes the self God. In other words, it comes down to a question of who or what has ruling authority over your life. If self-fulfillment is the end to which everything else bows, then it certainly is a false god. It certainly is an idol. Garland put it best. Those who fill themselves only with themselves remain empty. Jesus pushed directly into the philosophy of selfism in a lot of different places in his teaching. Oh, oh my. Let me just read to you Matthew 16, just a couple of verses. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And there's all kinds of other places in Jesus' teaching and, and what we have recorded in the gospel where he's saying, if you want to find life, you actually lay down your life. If you, you, you want to be alive, you actually, you become like a seed and you die and then you're planted and then you begin to grow and you begin to multiply, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus pushed directly into the philosophy of selfism. The question is, who or what has ruling authority over your life? And for most of us, if we're honest, it's just like, I do. I do. Jesus is good as far as it goes that he's bringing something to me. Men and women, part of what it means to be a Christian is to be willing to say, Jesus above me. And that's where it gets so hard. I mean, it's one thing to say, Jesus above all. It's another thing to say, Jesus above me. When someone believes that, though, that Jesus above me, and it begins to shape their desires, and it begins to shape their choices, that's when they find their life. That's when they gain what they never had before. That's when they're living out what Jesus meant when he says, if you want to live, you die first. This is part of the Christian faith, Jesus above me. All right, so those are the, the two, or, or two of what I think are the dominant, empty, and deceitful philosophies in our cultural context. Relativism and selfism. What's the antidote? What's the antidote? This might surprise you. It's actually worship. It's, but it's right worship. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about singing. I mean, that's a part of it. I'm not even talking about religious practice, although maybe that's a part of it. I'm talking about worship in a much more 
basic sense, in a much more instinctive sense. English word worship comes from Old English worth-ship. You know, it's, de- it's describing or ascribing to something value and worth. And guys, turns out human beings are natural worshipers. We are drawn to anything that looks valuable or shiny or beautiful or worthwhile or good. We're drawn to it like moths are drawn to light. In 2005, a secular novelist, uh, David Foster Wallace, gave a remarkable commencement speech to the graduating class at Kenyon College in Ohio. And in it, he talked a lot about worship. Isn't that interesting? Secularist writer talking about worship. I want to read to you a a couple paragraphs that that he wrote. Well, he, he spoke, he wrote and shared. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Three years after he gave that address in 2008, David Foster Wallace took his own life after a long battle with depression. I think to all of that, the Apostle Paul would say, you identified the correct problem. Men and women, there's a lot of truth in what David Foster Wallace wrote. Paul would say, you identified the correct problem, but there is a solution. There's only one. There is only one who is above all things. There is only one who is actually worthy of worship. worship. For in him, Paul wrote, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Men and women, the antidote to wrong thinking and wrong ideas and empty and deceitful philosophies that are all around us and, and in us. The antidote is right worship. Worshiping the right thing, the only thing, the one thing that can bear the weight of your expectations, bear the weight of life. Put your full weight on him, on Christ. I want to invite our ushers to begin passing out the elements of the Lord's table. 
And I, I'm just going to talk while they do that because there's a few more things that I, I want you to see and encourage you to meditate on and think about before we celebrate the Lord's table together. So ushers can go ahead and start passing those elements out. And I just want to say this but before the, before the tray gets to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, meaning you've put your trust in Jesus at any point in life, you believe that he actually is the one that can bear your weight. He's the one where true life is found. And you said, listen, I've gone all in in Jesus by faith. This table is for you this morning. You don't have to be a part of this church. You don't have to, you know, have signed some confession or creed. You believe, take the bread, take the cup, hold on to them together. We're going to celebrate them in a few moments. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ up till this point, why not today? Some of you might have the faith to believe. And it's as simple as saying, I believe that life is found in Jesus Christ. He bridged the gap that I needed to bridge to get to God. His life for my life, his death for my death. I'm putting my faith, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. And if that's the expression of your faith this morning, then take the bread, take the cup, celebrate with us. For some of you, let this be the first act of new creation that is inside of you. Now, as you're taking these elements, I, I just want to encourage you this way and, and apply the text to what we're about to do. We've been doing the Lord's Table uh, every week, except our Advent series, going back to the summer. And that's a change for us. Like, we hadn't been doing that prior to that. It had been more maybe once a month or once every six weeks or so. Uh, why have we been celebrating the Lord's Table each week? One of the reasons we've been doing this is because we believe that worship is formative. What I, I mean by that is for 2,000 years, worship services have served the purpose of shaping and forming the people of God. Whatever you do, you know, routinely, habitually, it'll shape you, it'll, it'll form you. We believe worship is formative. And so the practice of the table in particular, it tends to shape us in a way that goes to battle with some of the empty, deceitful philosophies of our day. Let me explain what I mean. The table pushes against selfism because every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're proclaiming that you are insufficient in and of yourself and that you must have something outside of yourself in order to be rescued, in order to have life. That fullness of life is not in you, that you're not the center of the world. You take the body, you take the bread as an expression. It's a proclamation that you are insufficient, that you are needy, and you need something that does not come from you. The table also pushes against relativism. How? Because every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are proclaiming that there is only one who has ultimate value. Only one who can satisfy your need for forgiveness, your need to be made right with God. Only one sacrifice, one time for all. Only one who can fill you up. And so you take these elements and you eat them. You put them in your body, knowing that they can't satisfy your physical hunger in the moment or your spiritual thirst or your, your physical thirst in the moment. They're not designed for that, but they point to a fulfillment that's so much greater. And there's only one who can satisfy and it's the body and blood of Jesus represented right here in what you hold. What you hold in your hands represents the whole fullness of deity 
in bodily form. We believe that the bread and the cup points to, represents, symbolizes the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Compared to him, everything else is hollow. Everything else is empty. Everything else is deceit. It promises what it can't deliver. Jesus came for all who are empty, which is all of us. Jesus came for all who would look to him to be filled by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have the cracker in your hand right now, know that this points to the broken body of Christ for you and let's eat it in remembrance of him. Now take the cup in your hand as well. And the cup points to the new covenant that is in the blood of Jesus, which is shed for us. Drink the cup in remembrance of him. We're now gonna just keep on worshiping. And we're gonna sing one more song together. So I wanna invite you to stand to your feet. Let's proclaim this truth in worship of our risen Savior, Jesus. Jesus.